Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about adoption, legislation, and other advocacy issues. I thought it was a fascinating discussion, and I think you will too. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. There is a bill in both the House and the Senate called the Adoption Tax Credit Refundability Act. So the Adoption Tax Credit as it stands is a little over $13,000, and it's available to families who adopt from domestic, infant adoption, um, foster care, or inter-country adoption. But what we know about that is it's just a credit and not refundable. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. Did you know that Creating a Family has an online adoption education center? Well, we do. We have over 100 one-hour downloadable audio courses with leading experts covering every topic you can imagine in adoption. So if you are an adoptive parent who needs adoption education credit from your adoption agency, or if you are an agency seeking resources for educating your families, please check it out. You can find it on our website, creatingafamily.org. We are also available for agencies to walk you and your staff through how to use it and how to access it, and we can give you a uh, passcode that uh, will allow you to access to go check out the individual courses. So just you can contact us here at Creating a Family, info at creatingafamily.org to get us to set up a time to walk you and or your staff through it. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com, or you can talk to your oncologist or reproductive endocrinologist today, and they can give you more information as well. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our gold sponsors include Adoption Connections. They are a California-based adoption agency working with families throughout the U.S., They were a national pioneer in open adoptions and are respected for their ethical practices, compassion, and openness to adoptive and birth families of all types. We also have Holt International. They were founded in 1956, wanting every child to have a loving and secure home. They have programs that strengthen and preserve families, and they are also a leader in the global community in finding families for children who need them. They are also strong in providing both pre- and post-adoption support. 
And I'm going to talk to you later in the show about some other gold sponsors. But in addition to these gold sponsors, we also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. We're going to be talking today about adoption, legislation, and advocacy. And we're going to be speaking with Chuck Johnson. He is the President and CEO of the National Council for Adoption. And we're going to be speaking with Megan Listino. She is their Director of Public Policy and Education. Welcome, Megan and Chuck, to Creating a Family. Well, thank you, Dawn. I'm really glad to be here and also uh, very pleased to just partner with you in your own effective adoption advocacy. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I it was surprising to me that you guys we had not had you guys on before. In fact, it was a real shock to me. So this is uh, we're making up for a long overlooked uh, omission uh, because you certainly are uh, a leader in what's happening in the advocating advocating for families, uh, adoptive families, and pre-adoptive families. Um, by far, the questions we received the most on, uh, and I'm not even going to read them out because they were all basically what's up, what's happening, and what can we do to help with the adoption tax credit. It is a topic. I'm not telling you. I'm preaching to the choir here, I realize, but I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So, Megan, why don't we start with you. What is happening with the uh, adoption tax credit legislation? Absolutely. So that is one of our key priorities for advocacy this year. Um, There is a bill in both the House and the Senate called the Adoption Tax Credit Refundability Act. So the Adoption Tax Credit as it stands is a little over $13,000, and it's available to families who adopt from domestic, infant adoption, um, foster care, or inter-country adoption. But what we know about that is it's just a credit and not refundable. And what that means is the lower to middle income. Wait, let me stop you and say, explain what that means. Uh, Because as much as we have talked about it, I still think there's confusion out there about the distinction. What what the heck is refundability and and why don't we have it? (laughs) But let's start with what it is. Yeah. So refundability means that if, as the credit is now, if you owe money in taxes, this will count against what you owe. If it were refundable, you would get the full amount whether you owe it or not. So that means for low to middle income families, which are often the ones adopting from foster care, um, if they don't have enough tax liability, they don't get any benefit from the tax credit right now. And we think it's really important for those families who need it most and who quite frankly are providing cost savings to the federal government to have that support available to them. And when you say they're, they're saving the government money, if, if a child is in, in foster care, uh, it costs the government a whole lot of money, as you would imagine. It costs the government less money uh, to prov- if the child is adopted into a family, even if the child is receiving subsidies, to say nothing of the fact that it's better for the child uh, to be uh, adopted into a permanent family rather than being in foster care. Uh, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but is that what right. you mean? No, by- and that is absolutely the most important thing is to get kids in families. But the truth is a Children's Bureau study said 
that annually, for every year a child isn't in care, the government has saved between sixty-five and one hundred twenty-seven thousand dollars per child per year. So sixty-seven. Sixty-seven and what? Did, what was the other one? Between sixty-five thousand and one hundred twenty-seven thousand dollars wow. per child per year. So it's really a $13,000 investment is the best thing for kids and really goes a long way for the economy. Yes. Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Um, and so, all this is, this is Chuck, I would just add to to that, that when we talk about that wide range of cost to foster care, it's really because we don't really know how much it costs the, the, the state and the federal government um, to house kids in care. And so a one-time $13,000 credit, when you you measure that with the ongoing cost of keeping a child in care, plus the ongoing expense of what we know happens to children who age out of care, it is just a substantial investment in the lives of children, and uh, it's the right thing to do, and it's the fiscally responsible thing to do, too. And it's rare that you get those two things combined, but we have it with this uh, Adoption uh, Tax Credit Refundability Act. Yeah, and, and, and we do have to say that the majority of children adopted from foster care do receive some form of subsidy. However, even putting in the subsidy amount, there's still a huge cost savings. Uh, I just say that because somebody's going to send us an email or comment on the social media <laughs> that we uh, that we didn't include that, but, but even including... Uh, subsidies. It's still a huge cost savings, um, but the uh, the refundability is not would not be just applicable to families from foster care. Would it? It would also be applicable to uh, other adoptive families under these bills. That's right. Megan, I'm sorry to be directing you. Yeah, this is Megan. Sorry, it is still open to all three types of adoption: intercountry, domestic, and foster care. Gotcha. Okay. So, what are the arguments against? refundability. I mean, it seems like it's a it seems like a no-brainer from that standpoint from what you know you're saying it's both best for kids, best for families and it's also best for the US uh, you know uh, budget. Um so what would be the arguments Chuck against refundability? Well, one of the the arguments and and if you look at just refundable tax credits, um there tends to be opposition to the concept of refundable tax credits because there's a history of um, those being abused um, and people claiming them falsely. But there is a government accountability study of the adoption tax credit where it determined conclusively that there was virtually zero fraud in the, the adoption tax credit and that parents really did use the adoption credit for the benefit of the children they were adopting. And so... Uh, refundable credits are somewhat controversial. That's one of the arguments against it. And and then, of course, uh, and this always requires a little bit of explanation, but if you really, when you look at um, the adoption tax credit was refundable in years 2010 and 2011. And so you had six years of families in 2010 uh, being able to claim the full credit at one time. And, and let me stop you a second. Out. And the reason, let me stop you a second. And the reason it is six years is because there was a carryover for five years. So it could a family in that one year, a family could go back. A family who adopted five years prior was still eligible. I'm, I'm hoping I'm explaining that correctly. Yes, you did. 
Um, that's correct. And in a non-refundable credit, a family could continue to claim the credit for up to six years until they received either the full benefit of it or the time period expires. Um, and so in that tax year for 2010, you had all of those families who would have eventually collected the refund claimant at one time. And it, you know, it appears that the adoption tax credit um, cost more than it actually does. And uh, so that was a, a, a strange year. But then if you look at it in 2011, you know, it really, um, the, the cost went down a good bit. It's like it caught up with itself. Is that the maybe yeah, a little bit exactly. of oversimplification? But okay, so that's another argument. People go back and they say, "Oh my gosh, look what it cost us the two years we did it." And so that's an argument. Um, and in general, is there a, 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 the perception that it's going, it's um, taking too much money, costs the U.S. government too much money? Is is that also a general argument against it, Chuck? Well, the adoption tax credit, as you know, has really been a very popular bipartisan supported um, legislation you know since it went into effect in nineteen ninety seven and so um, there's really broad based support for it and you know we had fought the fight for all of those years where uh, prior to two thousand and twelve when it was finally made a permanent part of the tax code. Um, we would have to go back every few years and fight the fight because it was scheduled to sunset. Um, and so, you know, in 2012, we were thrilled that it was made a permanent part of the the, uh, the tax code, but disappointed that the other piece of it, the refundability part, <clears throat> was dropped. And that's what, a, a, as you know, it's a very broad-based coalition of people who were fighting to um, – ensure that refundability is added back into the adoption tax credit for the good reasons that we've talked about. Megan, what? Uh, this is probably a little bit of an unfair question, but <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. What are the chances? Um, uh, just what's your gut feel, if you have it, are the chances for refundability? And then what can adoptive parents do and others who just care about kids, what can we do to help see that it that these these bills do pass. Yeah, so you're right. All I can do is guess with the rest of the country, but I I will say that this bill in the house has 48 co-sponsors and a really zealous advocate in its sponsors. Um so I think that it's doing well and has grown in the last month by several sponsors. So we think that it's hopeful. Um as we all know, anything passing in an election year can be a little tricky, but we still think That's it's really important to educate on this. Yeah, yeah, election years are, who knows, right? Um, but it's really important to educate on this because many of those members of Congress will be back next session, and if they've already been on a bill, getting it reintroduced and back in action is much easier if they already know and understand and support the issue. So we're hopeful for this year, but we also know that our efforts this year, even if it didn't pass, are still really important for the next Congress. And the best and way do to do that it, for families yeah, what do you is want to, to do? Call, okay. call your members of Congress. So there are lots of really terrific resources um, on how to make that call, how to do a visit, how to send a letter on adoptiontaxcredit.org. 
NCSA is part of the executive working group for the Save the Adoption Tax Credit working group. So that website has lots of great resources on how to do that really well. But the short and sweet version is call your members of Congress, both senators and your representative, and say, this is really important to me. I want you to sponsor it, and this is why it's important. And there's lots of resources you can share with them on that website that will help fill in the details about this bill. We periodically uh, run an adoption in the news segment on our site, uh, linking and including information on what to do, how to do it, and linking to the adoptioncredit.org site. We will do that again um, after this show. So for our listeners who uh, just uh, uh, go to our homepage and click on Adoption in the News, uh, and we'll outline it there, and we will include the link to the adoptiontaxcredit.org. All right. Um, well, there are other things in addition to the very important adoption tax credit. There are a few other things that, that are happening on the Hill and elsewhere that affect adoption. Um, Chuck, can you talk to us about the Family First Prevention Services Act? Um, well, and that's really something Megan is uh, spearheading. Oh, so, Megan, you want to take that one? Yeah. And sure, feel I'm free glad to, to do, do that because I don't know which one each of your expertise is, is in, so I may direct a question. So just send it. Feel free to pass it off. And, Chuck, hey, if you don't like the question, just give it to Megan, too. You know, you can stick it to her. <laughs> Megan, feel free to do the same. Gosh. <laughs> so fun. <laughs> well, we um, love the Family First Prevention Act for a few reasons. It's doing really great work attempting to do really great work at prevention services. And we think that's really important to maintain families of origin. But the reason it's especially important to us as the National Council for Adoption is that that's not just for families of origin. Those support services, mental health service, substance abuse services, in-home parent skill-based programs will all also be available to adopt families who might be struggling with those things. So families who are just having a hard time, who are facing the hard decisions about disruption or dissolution, these are the sort of services that they can receive before they get to those hard places. So we love and support it for those reasons. Um, That's, as you probably know, a huge uh, push for creating a family this year as well. Let me ask a question on that. One of the complaints we hear from international adoptive families is that it is harder for them to access services, post-adoption services, than it is for families who adopt through foster care. There's less money, there's less resources available to them. Um, I, it's my understanding that the Family First Prevention Services Act will apply to families families in the generic sense of the word, regardless of whether they were formed through adoption or through birth or through international adoption or foster care adoption. Am I, do I have that correct, Megan? Yeah, that's absolutely right. As we understand it, anyone who is legally part of a family will have access to services for their family. So it is a far broader scope than um, federal funds have often been available for. And we think it can really do a lot of good for all types of families. And how is it doing on the Hill? Because this is such a need, and, and it provides services, but it provides funding for services, which 
is what is one of the things. There's a number of things that are needed for post-adoption support, but that is certainly one of them. So what is its chances? It seems like this would be kind of like motherhood and apple pie. How could you possibly vote against it? But I'm guessing that that's uh, not the case necessarily. Well, because they're prevention services, we think it'll come with some cost savings long term, but it also comes with some costs up front. So there are certainly conversations about those costs. However, they are having big conversations about it in the House right now. I was watching them talk about it on the House floor last night. Um, we think that it is very likely to move forward and the Senate will also work on it. So this is a bill I actually am pretty hopeful about happening this Congress, despite the complications of the election year. And, and when, uh, for the rest of us who are not uh, as intimately familiar with uh, legislation and how it moves, when you say that you are hopeful, does uh, what type of time frame, when would they be voting on this? They are talking about it now in committees. Um, I would hope that they would potentially vote in July or August on this. Um, Congress will have a little less time in session than they do in a typical year because of the elections. So I am hopeful that there'll be progress over the next couple of weeks. And if it were to happen, it would likely be this summer. Excellent. Okay, good. All right. And I would well, just add to what yeah. what she said, Dawn, and, and it's really true on just about all of these issues pertaining to adoption, but when you look at the, the bipartisan support uh, and the people who are in, engaged in these alleg this legislative initiatives, it's just amazing how diverse it is where you see some of the most conservative Republicans uh, uh, on board with some like some some very liberal people, and so it's just amazing where they kind of come together, and including this legislation that Megan's talking about. It really is a bipartisan um, effort, and and we always hope that that increases our chances when you when you see um, the diversity of support in it. Well, and you know, it seems to me on this particular one. It, the media has certainly picked up in the last several years because it is, um, you know, it's, it's eye-catching and tragic and, 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 and you know, it's, it's clickbait on, to some level. But the, uh, the, uh, the whole issue of rehoming, which is, uh, I don't particularly care for the term, uh, but adoption dissolutions. In fact, it was interesting. I was being interviewed uh, this morning by somebody and who didn't know a lot about international adoptions. They were going to be writing a, a national article on it. And, um, it. It had not done a great deal of research, in fairness, but still, uh, her main idea of international adoptions was that they were fraught with complications and most likely to fail. And her information came from the media. So it seems to me that that in this one case that the the what I think it it's hard to say it's hyper focused because in fact any time an adoption dissolves it is a, a true tragedy for the child the family and the adoption professionals involved but um, it seems to me in this case the media's focus on adoption dissolutions failures adoptions falling apart might actually help this legislation Chuck is that your perception as well Yeah I I I believe that that's true and because there was such a strong response to it as there should have been. I mean, I think all of us, yeah. particularly those who 
advocate so strongly for adoption, and particularly inter-country adoption, you know, we're, we were terribly concerned about each of those um, outcomes and looking for ways to protect children from that happening. And, and it, but you've made a good point, Dawn, and, and, and one, I was, I guess, essentially saying the same thing one time to a reporter that, you know, we have um, in the news they like to cover the, the, the very rare outcomes, the negative outcomes. These are real outcomes, but, but they're not representative of the vast majority of, uh, of adoptions. And the reporter's comment was, is we don't report on the planes that land. And so yeah. it just really talks about the media's focus. There's, it really is hard to get um, an accurate picture out there uh, on all types of adoption, not just in our country, but um, there are stories of, of, uh, of prospective birth parents who scam uh, the prospective parents or prospective parents who don't honor their commitments to birth parents. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you hear about these negative outcomes where, where kids um, have far greater um, health issues than previously expected and families are struggling. These, these are real stories and we need to do something about them. But you're right, it really does um, present a very false image of the really true benefit that adoption has for children and for families. And for families, and the fact that most families are thriving. We did a show um, a number of weeks ago, not too, not very long ago, with Richard Barth, Dr. Richard Barth, and, and he has done uh, some of the leading research on, and, and certainly kept up with other research on the uh, the numbers, how, you know, I was really trying to to drill down and say, so how how common are dissolutions, how failed adoptions, and he it, it did a great job of summarizing what we know, and the reality is we know, we know less than you would imagine on on these numbers, but he did a really good job, so I recommend that show uh, to our um, it's uh, uh, parenting to prevent adoption uh, dissolutions adoption failures I think is maybe how we titled it Uh, and you can find that uh, on the radio page of our website creatingafamily.org let me just break for a moment and to say we primarily as creating a family keep in touch with our audience through our newsletters and we would love to have you sign up for our newsletter we have two newsletters uh, an adoption and an infertility newsletter you can choose which one or both to receive it is a once a week email newsletter so please sign up on any page of our website it's on the top right side creatingafamily.org all right i'm not sure who to direct this one to so megan i'm going to start with you and if you don't like the way it sounds you can dump it over to uh, chuck (laughs) the uh i wanted to talk about the state department the u.s state department is in the process of considering changing their adoption, this would be for international adoption, uh, education requirements, which are required under, well, I won't, it's, it's a treaty that the U.S. is a part of, but uh, for our audience, they probably don't care about that, but they might well care about um, the changes that uh, the State Department is considering. So thoughts on that? What are you hearing, Megan, as to what uh, the State Department is thinking about? Sure, this is Megan, and we know that they are working on some new regulations. Um, And here at NCFA, we are extremely supportive of lots of education. We have an online education training ourselves for intercountry adopting parents, um, and we think that an increased requirement wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. That said, we don't know yet what that will look like exactly, 
Um, we hope that it would be a training that would help parents to be focused more specifically on the needs of the children coming into their homes. So we hope there'd be some flexibility in that, um, helping them to learn specifically about the countries that their ch children are coming from, if there are known needs of those kids. For example, if they were in institutional care, we know there are known deficits for those children. If they have special medical or mental health needs or um, a lack or a special type of social interaction or type of neglect or abuse that they've faced, parents should get to have that information and when they know what it is, should get to have specialized training that's a great fit to that. So we are for more training. Um, we don't know yet if we, what Department of State will do exactly. We're looking forward to seeing what comes out um, and we certainly will do our best to advocate for that to be the best thing for kids. And we think that often more training and more specific training for families can be really good. It's always interesting and to me how that there is uh, so much training required for international and so little uh, required for domestic. Now, in fairness, it is domestic infant, and, and so in some ways, you could make the argument that less training and less education, pre-education is necessary, but at least in areas, there are certainly some, some areas that with domestic infants that some education could be required, and some states don't require any at all. That's interesting, or it is to me anyway. But right. Dawn, I would add, and yeah. we have um, been in, in close contact with the Department of State and the Office of Children's Issues as we have even before the the, uh, the Hague Convention on Intercountry Adoption went into effect, we're eight years into that, and it is our understanding, and, and this is what you you are alluding to, is that they're they're doing a what I think will be a fairly comprehensive updating of all of those implementing regulations. They had said to the uh, community, the full full adoption um, professional community. Um, a few months ago at the beginning of the year that they they thought those regulations would be out in mid-April of this year. And, of course, that's come and gone. Um, and so uh, we touched base with the Department of State, and um, they said that they would not come out any sooner than this summer. So we're waiting. Um, we do believe, as Megan said, that, uh, and again, they have been so closely guarded on what the changes will be because we have asked. We have asked repeatedly. Um, but one of the ones I would be most confident about is that we will see a, um, what, what I think will be a substantial increase in the number of required hours. Right now it's 10 hours. I wouldn't be surprised, and this is just me guessing because the State Department people have not given me any, any indication of this, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it be uh, at, at least minimally three times, so up to potentially 30 hours, and that's just my guess. But we'll wait and see, and uh, we're waiting for those to come out, and we'll have a full response to all of the um, changes when they come out. You know, yeah, I, I, I certainly have, I, like you, I've heard the 30 hours. But those uh, regulations, they haven't even come out for notice and comment yet, have they? Or, and, and do they have to come out for notice and comment? They do. Um, they have not come out, and that's what was supposed to happen in April. They'll be published in the Federal Register um, there'll be a certain number of days assigned to it that um, that those uh, with a, uh, an interest in those regulations can provide feedback and comment back 
to um, to the State Department, whether supporting or expressing reservations about the extent of the change. And they're to take all of that feedback back and uh, review it and then make decisions um, how much of it they'll take um, or not. You know, right now there's a process that I think is very important that is under review, and I think the deadline is coming up the, the first week of July, but there is a proposal from USCIS that would raise the cost of the certificate of citizenship that, that people get after the adoption. It will increase at 95%. Uh, so a substantial increase is coming, and we're, we've called upon the adoption community to provide feedback, and, and, and certainly we're expressing concerns about such a substantial increase in inter-country adoption for all, that all families will incur to some, in one way or another, uh, particularly those that uh, don't automatically get the Certificate of Citizenship. Wow, yeah, please keep uh, us informed, and we will uh, help be your bully pulpit uh, and, and spread the word on the well, any of this, this goes for everything you're saying. We would love to help you uh, spread the word for any of your advocacy e efforts. But in, it, but specifically, I was referring to the increased cost of the certificate, uh, uh, citizenship certificate. Um, yeah, because, again, I mean, the, the educational requirements will uh, be more as well, uh, cost more as well, or potentially could. I shouldn't say they will, so we don't really know, but potentially could. Yeah, fascinating, and thank, I'm, I'm thankful that you are on board and keeping up with it. Let me stop for a moment and remind you that this show is brought to you by the generous support of our gold sponsors. I mentioned a few at the top of the, uh, the show, at the top of the hour. Let me mention a few more. We have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience, and they have three adoption programs, a private infant program, an international program, and an adoption through foster care program. We also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting kids from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York. And we have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. All right, Chuck, could you tell us a little about the Human Rights Bill and how that impacts uh, adoption and international adoption? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, we have, as an organization, National Council for Adoption has um, been at the forefront in promoting um, you know, even going back to the, the Hague Convention, um, that NCFA had, had strongly supported that. We had been very disappointed, however, with its implementation and, and, and blame in part its implementation on the more than 70% decrease that you've seen in inter-country adoption. And we've been concerned and critical um, of our government's um, lack of proactivity, I think, in serving the needs of orphans worldwide. And so we were really excited um, to see um, H.R. 5285 um, introduced a couple of weeks ago in the House. And um, what it does is it will require the, the permanent institutionalization of children. It will define that um, as a violation of the child's human rights. And it will be included in the annual report to Congress that the Department of State um, puts together. And so um, when we think about something that leads, I think, to potentially a um, 
comprehensive change in, in thinking and mindset and practice. The idea that uh, if we could equate the institutionalization of children and all the bad things that we know that happen to these children in those institutions, that it is a a extremely poor substitute for a family and that, that it is not in their best interest to remain institutionalized when their families uh, – even internationally, who are willing to adopt them, and so I think it changes the whole conversation. If we could, if this legislation can go through, um, that uh, that institutionalization of children is a violation of denying them the access and right to a family is a violation of their human rights, and uh, I think that changes the entire conversation if we can get it through. How I, how does that interact with? the implementation of the Hay, because one of the arguments about uh, the um, frustration with how Hague has been implemented, maybe everywhere, but especially here in the United States, is that it has resulted in far more children growing up in institutions. Yes, it's cut down international adoption, but the, 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 the unintended consequence of that is that children are growing up within, in institutions. So how does, if the if we were able to define institutionalization or permanent institutionalization as a human rights violation, how would that, what are some of the consequences of that designation and how would that impact the way we practice international adoption? And, and, well, and, and I'm I mean, directing that it, to you, Chuck. Yeah, I think it will have just, again, substantial uh, it would validate what we know the research is telling us. It would validate what those of us who have been around the world in these institutions already know that children in these institutions are not benefiting from the care and that they need a family. And one of the, um, I think, criticisms that we've leveled against our own government as they have focused on the necessary regulatory responsibilities that they have uh, with the Hague Convention is that um, that with that regulation, it's been devoid of any kind of advocacy, and so the negative outcomes that you would see, that we have seen, the the, the more than 70 percent decrease in the number of intercountry adoptions at a time that the world's orphan population is grown by many millions, exactly what you said that children are. Um, uh, that orphanages uh, in these countries where they've limited the number of adoptions or closed intercountry adoption, that the orphan orphanages are just you know busting at the seams and completely unable to care for for the children that they have. That that parents, biological parents in these countries, have no option of what to do, and so children are being abandoned unsafely and exposed to the elements in places all around the world because of the 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 um, uh, lack, I think, of recognizing um, the violation that it is that children are denied access to a family when they're waiting families, even families in another country. Um, and, um, and I think that's just part of the root problem is that the reason we have not had the proactivity that I think we need is that we don't, and by we I mean the, the governments, don't see what's happening to these children as truly a violation of their human rights. I think they see it as a natural consequence of poverty and of overwhelmed systems 
um, but not necessarily a violation of their a specific violation of their human rights. And we would argue that it is a violation of their human rights, particularly if there is a family, even you know, in their country or in in another country that would be willing to open their hearts and homes to them, and that we should be doing more to to create uh, access to that instead of creating obstacles and, and hurdles and preventing it from happening. And and also do more because another option to institutionalization is family preservation. Do more to preserve uh, biological mm-hmm. families, birth families, so that they uh, can keep, keep and raise their own children. So that's it's not just benefiting uh, or just encouraging adoption because it would also um, support family preservation efforts as well. It would. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we received a question on original birth certificate access legislation, so I want to turn to that. Let me read the question. It's from Claudia. She says, uh, do they, meaning NCFA, National Council for Adoption, plan in the near future to take a stand on original birth certificate access? It's super nice that they don't come out against it anymore, and I do appreci- appreciate that stance, but when can we hope it will move to the next level? All right, so uh, Chuck, I'll let you have a choice whether you want to uh, ditch this one over to, to Megan or you want to uh, step up for it. Well, uh, actually, it's been something that Megan has um, written extensively <laughs> yeah, like about. So I will. Uh, I knew I'd get this one. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you first that I wrote an advocate on this, and I think I know the Claudia that's coming from. So yeah, hello. You probably do. And. <laughs> um, I wrote an advocate on this, and that is still NCFA's position. That's available on our website under our Adoption Advocates, which is our monthly publication. This is an issue NCFA is not especially active on. We think that when all of the parties involved in an adoption agree and want contact, contact is positive and great, and we think that the overall shift towards openness and adoption over the years is a really good thing. Um, But because this is not an issue that helps put more children in families, it's not an issue we prioritize advocacy on. Um, So I regularly take calls from individuals looking for, um, I take calls from both birth parents and adoptees looking for the other, um, and I help to facilitate whatever the law and options are within their state. So that's something we help out with, but it's not something we're actively advocating on. And that's the decision of our leadership and our board. And because there's so many kids still in need and because we think that many of these adoptees have better and better options all the time at openness, it's not something we prioritize. But original birth certificate is is, is a distinct issue from openness. They are intertwined. I, do, I, I appreciate that. But sure. It, it is a distinct issue, and there are certainly uh, adult adoptees who believe that it's a fundamental right that they have to access to their original birth certificate, regardless of whether they want to contact uh, birth family or not. But I suppose that doesn't change your stance on the on the issue one way or the other? Not too much. You're right, though, and it is important to make that distinction. They may or may not be interested in that. It does give them the information that would allow contact, though. We think that's great as long as everyone involved thinks that's great. And and, and, and I would just I, I would just add to that, Don, that you know even though 
as an issue, it's not something that um, NCFA is is on the form, forefront of anymore. It is a conversation that we have internally uh, with our staff and our board. NCFA is comprised of of uh, the full triad from we have adult uh, adopted persons on staff, we have birth parents on staff and adoptive parents, and they're, they're on our staff and our board. Um, and, and so we do have these conversations. It's not that we're um, insensitive to those who want uh, access to their, their birth certificates. I, we recognize that and understand that it, it's important to, um, to many people. At the same time, um, trying to, and even though it's admittedly a small uh, number of, of individuals who wish to maintain their privacy and trying to balance those competing rights sometimes has been an issue that um, we just really have had a hard time um, coming up with, a, you know, a really uh, firm position other than that of mutual consent, um, which, again, the research has shown, if you really research um, the members of the triad, birth parents and adoptees and adoptive parents, um, to, you know, more than two-thirds of all the, of, of those, that, that population support and desire um, openness and access to their records, but at the same time they, uh, they, they would say that they don't want their personal information given out without their consent. And so, you know, even you have that, that tension there that, uh, that we're just really having a, a hard time. We know the research is showing that, that, uh, that the open adoption practices work well. There's research that also shows that uh, for these uh, reunions, um, even when there's a professional mediation component uh, in that, that 20% of, of, um, of the cases, um, either the adoptive person or the birth parent walks away unsatisfied and so um, it, it's a complicated issue. Um, we're not diminishing its importance. We're not um, uh, uh, ignoring uh, the real concerns that, that people have on, on all sides, but it, it's just been our position uh, to support mutual consent. Here's another question from uh, Sandy. And she uh, says, I'll just read the question. She says, why don't they have the document and here's the title, Principles of Good Practices in Infant Adoption, anymore. Why don't you have any more of this, that on your website, that, that document? Then she asks, does NCFA have standards of practice that agencies must adhere to if they are members? Uh, Chuck, I'll send this one to you. Yeah, and I think both of us can probably provide a little bit of direction on that because um, uh, Megan does um, head up our constituent services department. Uh, we do have um, qualifications for um, our membership. Um, there is a, a pretty uh, in-depth membership process. We do not have um, primarily people, professionals join NCFA uh, because they're invited to join rather than uh, a general call towards membership. And um, and so, um, you know, we want membership in NCFA to, to mean something. Uh, we're not an accrediting body, however, though, and so um, as much as we, you know, want to uh, have that strong process for membership, 
um, at the same time, um, you know, we're not that we the membership in NCFA is not necessarily an endorsement of an of the agency's practices. But yes, we do have um, membership criteria. The um, the document that uh, you referenced is something um, I was not aware that it had been taken down, other than the fact that it was written so many years ago. And I know we began a process a few years ago of updating. Um, that document, and um, I guess I'll have, I'll have to accept responsibility for not not seeing it through. But uh, it had been written before the internet. Um, it had been written before um, uh, open adoption practices were the norm, and we felt that it needed to to be updated. So I guess that's the reason that it's down. It's not a reflection um, of our desire for um, for standards of good practice. In fact. You know, I, ca I came to NCFA with um, an agency background and a desire to, to really use this platform to promote best practices across the board. And I think if you look at the kinds of information that we're putting out, we are calling the professional adoption community to a higher level of practice, um, and uh, and, I, and, I, and we're doing that through you know, through uh, establishing what best practices are, and we're doing it, I think, through the education that we are providing them. All right. Let me take a moment and thank the last of our gold sponsors. As I have said before, you wouldn't be sitting, you wouldn't be listening to us now if we didn't have the support of these agencies and sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information to pre and post adoptive families. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. And Nightlight Christian Adoption. In 1997, the first embryo adoption program in the world began, named the Snowflake Embryo Adoption. Uh, they now have celebrated over 450 snowflake babies as a result of direct embryo donation through the Snowflakes program at Nightlight Christian Adoptions. We have another question from Robin, and she asks if you have any pull to try and move for standard nationwide adoption laws and what can individuals do to influence. Well, let me just stop. I'll, I'll, I'll just, she has two different questions. Um, her first question implies what those of us who are in the field know, but that it's always surprising to people who are new to adoption, and that is that there are there is no one U.S. adoption law. It's it's controlled by state law, and therefore every state as well as territory has a separate law, and they can vary substantially. Um, Robin uh, is implying that uh, uh, that it would be better if it was a we had standardized national law, which would mean it would be on the federal level. Thoughts on that? Megan, we'll start with you, and I have a feeling Chuck will also want to chime in on this one. Sure. I um, will say first that federal law typically touches on things that happen nationally or on things that federal funds are available for. So the distinction, I mean, there, and just to confirm what she said, yes, there's all sorts of distinctions depending on the state, tribe, territory, um, and type of adoption, infant adoption, foster care, and intercountry, it all works wildly differently. Um, foster care and infant adoption specifically are governed by state laws. And just from a very big picture civics lect lecture kind of way, I can tell you that domestic relations laws, so 
all of the things that sort of touch families and family property are typically governed by state and state laws. And there is um, there are strong feelings about the fact that states should get to have control and specialize for their particular audiences. Um, so federal laws typically touch on things that happen going across state lines or that will happen in many states. Um, so that's sort of the why behind that. NCSA has in the past provided standards, and we still provide lots of best practice guidance on what we think the laws should be. We are a small team, so we're mostly involved in federal advocacy, but we do occasionally interact on state issues as well. We certainly think there are best practices out there, but we also know that states typically manage those domestic relations laws and asking them all to do exactly the same thing would take a long time and a lot of effort and still might not come out exactly right, which is why we think the best thing we can do is provide what we believe to be best practices and advocate for those um, and hope that those make an impact in the practice and in the laws. Okay. that's um, uh, Chuck, any thoughts before we move on? Well, and, you know, we have tried to play a, a very active role in, in advocating for best practices if um, whether it relates to birth fathers, uh, it's been a big um, platform for me personally to to uh, create access for birth fathers and to ensure that uh, they are active participants in the process when that's available. Um, to uh, we've been looking at um, one of the concerns that we've identified is that is in relation to home studies is that there really is no uniform standard of home study and. Uh, and so we've looked at that, uh, but I think Megan is really, you know, here we've got legislation like the Adoption Tax Credit, you know, Refundability Act, which you can really look at and, and just know that it's in the best interest of children, it's in the best in interest of taxpayers, and yet here we are, you know, now uh, four years later still fighting it. I think um, the resistance you would get not only from the federal government, who has shown a reluctance to to uh, seize control of issues um, from states, um, and they try to influence the behavior of states through financing. But I think you would see states, you know, resist the, a federal takeover from uh, the, by the federal government. So um, you know, it's just really, uh, it's a compli I just, in my opinion, it would not be something that uh, would be a good use of our time. The best use of our time is to you know, look at what we know the research is telling us and try to create um, uniformity of practice, um, of professional practice within agencies and attorneys rather than necessarily the, the confusing state laws. I, I want to use the time we have left to do a little brain picking here about some trends that you guys are seeing uh, in, uh, in adoption, and I think I'd like to break it into, uh, let's start with domestic infant, then talk fo uh, international, and then talk foster. Oh, we'll do foster second and then international. And this is partly for the audience, but partly also because I just want to hear what you guys are seeing and thinking, and this is more <laughs> fun for me, I think. So let's start with domestic infant adoption in the U.S., what uh, what are some trends? What what do you think the future is going to bring? Where do you think we're moving with this? Megan, we'll start with you. Sure. Well, I will tell you first that we um, 
obviously are seeing far, far more openness more and more over time. And I think that is in part due to what we know to be best practice about sharing information and in part due to the openness uh, that the Internet and technology now provide us. Um, The other thing that we are doing specifically related to infinite option that we hope will give us all a little more information soon is every few years NCFA publishes national adoption data, and we're the only ones that still count infant adoptions. You sure are. We are in the process of counting those again. We've got a researcher working on it, Um, and we are still digging through the numbers on that, but we are hopeful that adoptions will be holding steady or possibly have increased some since our last count, which was about 18,000 on the infant front. So I think those are the biggest sort of trends and thoughts I can recognize. Uh, Chuck, what about you? Well, and I'll point out that I'm a social worker and Megan's a lawyer and neither of us are researchers or statisticians. But we're looking at the raw data that uh, we're receiving from the researcher, and and uh, you know it does seem to confirm um, what we're hearing from the field is that there have there potentially have been some increases in the number of um, domestic placements, and so you know we're anxious to see that. And then if that's the case, you know we'll sit down and really look at the reasons that we think there's been um, you know what what has contributed to the the increase in the number of domestic placements, if that does prove to be the case. Do you think you're going to see, a, a, one of the things that I have uh, been trying to find is the percentage of adoptions, domestic infinite, well, yeah, let's just say domestic infinite adoptions that are transracial. Um, Chuck, what, what are your, what do you, what is, what's your gut? It seems like that is going up, but I'm not, do you know of anyone, are you guys going to be tracking that in your numbers? We do not look at uh, the transracial component. We know across the board that if you count all adoptions, either from foster care or internationally and domestic infant, that uh, the majority of children who are being adopted are are across um, uh, racial lines. Um, We'll see, um, you know, whether that's that's true across the board in domestic infant placements, I don't know. But I don't think that, uh, and I've been around for 30 years, um, it it just doesn't seem to be um, the, the race doesn't seem to be the you know an obstacle that it once was. And again, the research is showing us that transracial placements can are, are really working very very well, particularly um, when families uh, you know implement a strategy for you know helping their children um, develop their own identities, um, um, their own cultural identities within that family. Uh, so there's a research is very very favorable towards transracial placements, uh, and then we're learning more through that research of ways that families can um, achieve even greater success in helping their, the children that they've adopted across racial lines to um, develop their, their their identities. All right, let's move to foster care. Uh, and since I started with Megan before, Chuck, I'll, I'll, I'll direct this one to you and then give Megan the second chance on this one. Um, so what trends do you see in foster care adoptions? Well, the, the, the biggest trend is one of concern right now. Um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reports every year on the number of kids in foster care, and 
really after many, many years of seeing the number of kids in care uh, decrease, um, this last report that they issued um, late last year um, showed it the, the first increase, the first uptick in the number of kids entering care. And then we're monitoring the, the data really daily uh, where states are reporting that um, they are being overwhelmed with foster care admissions. So um, we, we are concerned about um, the growing number of kids entering care um, and uh, the, the, the time that they're spending in care um, seems to be increasing too. And, and uh, the, what we are hearing, and I'm just confirming that you're hearing the same, is that, that the increase in, the, especially the more recent increase in kids coming into, into foster care is being tied back to the opioid epidemic and, and abuse mm -hmm. of uh, legal and illegal opioid drugs. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, as well? we've, we've identified three, three reasons. Um, the, the one that you mentioned is the, 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 op the opium um, epidemic that seems to be sweeping the country, not just the, the areas that you normally would expect it, but, you know, really in middle America where you're seeing um, this epidemic take place. And, and I think um, the kids in foster care, um, that increase is really uh, indicative, I think, of a, a uh, potentially a significant problem that we may have um, in the United States. Um, also, the economy, um, you know, is still tough for some some families, and so that might be a, a reason. And then the third reason, and you see this really anecdotally in states, but um, something tragic happens, and so then there's this crackdown. Uh, we, we've seen it in Florida. We've seen it in Massachusetts, where the pendulum um, shifts where they were, there was the movement toward leaving kids in care under supervision, in care with their biological families under supervision, but then a tragedy happens, and so then they go through a season of, you know, um, removing kids and placing them in care. So I think it's those, those three reasons are contributing to the trend. That's a very, the last one in particular is an extremely good point. That Yeah, okay, excellent. Megan, any thoughts on foster care before we uh, move to international? I think Chuck hit all of my highlights, actually. Those sort of are our three indicators, and I agree with that entirely. Okay. Well, how about in trends in international adoption, as we've mentioned uh, um, on this show, uh, there in the last number of years there has been a very steady uh, but significant decrease in international adoptions. Thoughts, Megan, on, on what the future may bring? Well, and... You're right. The decreasing trend we have found heartbreaking because we know there are willing and waiting families in the U.S. And we think that part of that is the fact that the way that we have implemented the Hague Convention is so complicated for families and for agencies that it is slowing the process and in some cases perhaps discouraging families from that type of adoption where it might have been their first choice previously. So those are sort of the hard pieces of it. I I will say that we um, do think that there is a little hope in that Department of State is looking at individualized solutions for different countries that we think may help to bring more adoptions out of some of those places. Um, that's something they've talked about. We haven't seen a lot of the results of that yet, but we do hope that that is 
um, what do you over mean the next by two years. I'm sorry, let me interrupt a second. What do you mean by an individualized approach based on the country, country-by-country country approach? Sure, and it'll depend entirely on the location, but the needs in different places are different. So in places where there are concerns about the type of documents we're receiving, we might put special requirements on agencies and families on the way we document the orphan status of a child, for example. Um, just to confirm that there are ethical practices in place and speed up the process that brings children out of family care and into safe, loving permanency. Um, there are a variety of things that might take place, but that's one typical example is helping to ensure okay. we're getting good information. And, and, and on to, yeah, go ahead, to that, one of our, one of our criticisms uh, against the implementation of the Hague is that um, we've tended to expect every country to, to fit in a, in a very narrow square uh, as opposed to the country might be, you know, a circle, uh, that you can't treat Nepal in the same way that you would treat China. And that's what we've done. And so we have been advocates for country-specific solutions for years, and we were pleased to hear the Department of State um, within the last year that to express a desire to start looking at country-specific solutions. Nepal was an example that they gave, that they would sit down and, as you know, Nepal is currently closed. Uh, there are many orphans there in Nepal, and it's a country that is asking the U.S. to help them with inter-country adoption, but we've not been able to because of a general concern um, by our government that uh, they, they just don't have a high level of confidence in in the, the central authority's ability to supervise that. So if you have those concerns and there are orphans there, what can you do? What process can we create that would increase the U.S.'s confidence in those referrals? And so we were really delighted to see that discussion happening uh, we're a year into it, and we still haven't seen uh, it applied to any country yet, but uh, it was after more than seven years, it was good to hear that the State Department was considering um, approaching each country uniquely and uh, creating a special working relationship with that country that would allow the U.S. to serve the needs of their orphans. All right, any other thoughts of... Um uh, whether we'll continue to see uh, the march downward in numbers or anything else that we might see other than we've already talked about, education requirements in, in, uh, increasing and, um, well, actually, and, and certificate of, of, of citizenship cost increasing and individualized approaches to uh, requirements per country rather than a universal approach. Anything else, uh, Chuck, that you're seeing in the trends for international adoption well I think we've covered the major ones so uh, that's okay. all I have all right well we have come to the end of our time together let me tell our audience that uh, one of the things that the National Council for Adoption does every year is they put on a terrific conference and their conference is coming up it is in New Orleans this year and it will be September 22nd through the 24th it is both for adoptive families as well as adoption professionals um, and, and both could benefit, but if you are an adoption professional listening to this, I just strongly encourage you to talk with your agency 
about sending you or send yourself the uh, information that you'll receive is valuable. And, and of course, if you're a parent, the information will also be valuable. I will be presenting there this year, uh, and uh, I am really looking forward to it. I uh, thank you so much, uh, Chuck and Megan, for being our guests today on Creating a Family. I think that people will want to reach out uh, and to follow through with some of the advocacy things that we have discussed in your website. I've mentioned that we will be including, we routinely include, and we will continue to include advocacy in our adoption in the news. However, um, you would also, uh, the uh, your website, which is Adoption Council. AdoptionCouncil.org, you have an entire advocacy page. If you go to the resource tab uh, across the top, you have an adoption advocate page. You also have a page for adoption laws. So if uh, our audience is interested in understanding what the laws are, uh, that page is there. So I strongly encourage uh, everyone to go to the website AdoptionCouncil.org to get more information about how to advocate for the bills that we've mentioned today and to keep track of uh, what's happening because they do maintain that and keep it up to date. Thank you all for joining us today and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.